and chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. I want to read the first 11 verses. I won't work through all of those, but, um, but I want to read the first 11 verses, please. Hear the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, uh, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now I'm going to begin this Sunday, this treatment, this study for us, uh, of, of the book of, of the book of Acts, uh, it comes by that name, Acts, meaning actions or doings. Uh, usually attached to the word Acts is of the apostles, so it often carries the title the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's not a good title, and since titles of biblical books is not inspired, then we can play around with the titles a bit, and we'll come to that. But that's the traditional title, the Acts uh, of the Apostles. You might ask. Why am I taking up the book of Acts? Well, the thought process I went through to get here is the same thought process and prayer process I go through all the time uh, when I find myself in need of something else to pick up once I've finished uh, a, a particular series or a particular study. The first thing that came to my mind is, is what would I like to learn about? And, and there were two Old Testament books, actually, that came to my mind that I don't understand very well. So I thought, oh, this would be a great time. I'll study those, and that would help me to learn them. I won't tell you what books they were just in case I've explained them to you before and now you're saying he's just confessed he doesn't understand them well uh, and wants to learn more about them. But I didn't pick those. Then there's a New Testament passage that really came close because um, it's a great comfort to me and a great help to me. And, and sometimes I pick what to preach on that, which I think would be good for me. And so what, I'm just, what I think would just nourish my soul. And there's a New Testament passage that really came close but then I began to consider the book of Acts and came to the conclusion, I think it's what we need to hear. Now, I've preached through Acts once before, in uh, 1994. Uh, so I'm assuming, how many people were here in 1994? Okay, good. That's good. And I know your memory, so you'll be, we'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but it can't be bad to go through Acts twice in our lives together. But this is the first time, actually, in 17 years that I've actually repeated the whole thing. Uh, and so I'm sure it will be somewhat different than it was before. Uh, but um, 
But I do think it's 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 what we what we need to hear. Now, for those of you who know the book of Acts, you're probably thinking it's Darden Tootin. That's right. That's exactly what we need to hear because there's a, there's, a, there's a soapbox in the book of Acts for everybody. I mean, everybody kind of takes a stand here. If you, if you like more community life, this is your book. If you want to hear more about the Holy Spirit, this is it. If you want to talk about evangelism and missions, this is your book. If you want to talk about the kingdom of God, well, here we are. It talks about the kingdom of God. And so there's something here for everybody. In fact, almost every denomination comes back to the book of Acts and says, see, this is how they did it in the first church. This is how they did it in the early church. I mean, we Presbyterians love the book of Acts because in chapter 14, Paul appoints elders. And in chapter 15, the elders come together. And in chapter 20, there's this really moving meeting of Paul and the elders from Ephesus. And so the Presbyterians are really hot on that. The Pentecostals, of course, love uh, Acts chapter 2. And so you can get down the list. The Congregationalists argue with the Presbyterians about church government from the book of Acts. And so it's just just interesting how all, all all that happens. But you see, there's a danger in having an interest, a special interest, as, as we approach this book, because you may be only concerned about your particular interest and, and miss what really is there, what miss the rest. And we also have to be careful because it's easy to romanticize history. Many times people say, well, what we need to be in our churches, we need to be like the first century church. And I says, I, I, I don't want to be like Corinth. Okay? I mean, I, I don't... I don't, I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be like the church in Galatia, where Paul says, you foolish Galatian. I don't want to be the church in Laodicea, which you read about in Revelation chapter 3, that Jesus said that God is about ready to spew you out of his mouth. So I appreciate the, the, the concept, but, but I really don't want to be at least some of those, some of those churches. And there is this sense, too, as we read through the book of Acts, that what happened to them must happen to us in exactly the same way. And I think we have to realize that there are historical events in the history of redemption that are unique and may not happen to us quite the same way that it happened to them. And there are other things that we say, well, because they did it this way, then we must do it this way. And again, just a caution that that may not be exactly what the passage is teaching, that we must do it this way because they did it that way. And so again, just to be careful, cautious of the dangers, the big question is, what's there really for us? What's God saying to us through this particular book? And you might be thinking too, why does he think we need to hear this now? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Um... Because I might be wrong, and I don't want to bias you from the beginning. So if my little bent about why I think we need to hear the book of Acts is wrong, I don't want you to have that on your mind. And if I'm right, it'll come up. If I'm right, it'll, it'll, it'll work. But, uh, but the key for us is that we know we won't be wasting our time because the bottom line is the book of Acts is in the Bible. And that's always good preaching, listening material. So we'll go with that. But the question as we begin is this, why is it here? Why these particular events from the life of the early church, why, are, why is it here? Why did God so superintend an author in such a way as to cause from his life to come this book? Well, we get some hints as we, as we just read the opening verses, verse 1. In the first book, so that tells us right off the bat, this is the second book. Right? There was some other book, some other volume before this one. So this is sort of volume two from this particular author. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, 
I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there's this guy, Theophilus, uh, who must know the author, and, uh, and, and he's saying, now this is the second book, and, and my first book dealt with what Jesus began, very significant word, which is Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, you can get a sense from, the, from his birth, if you will, all the way through then to his ascension. That's what the first book was about. And so this book now continues on. And we identify this author really as Luke, who Paul refers to as the beloved uh, uh, physician. Uh, turn, please, to Luke in chapter 1, just the opening verses of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke puts it like this, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now perhaps Theophilus was like, Bob or Bill or Tom or whatever is a common name. But you get a sense that these two guys must be the same thing. He says, listen, my first book I talked to you, I wrote it to you. This is the second one. And so Luke is, is, is authoring this, this, this work, Volume 1, Volume 2, which in the early church were often combined together as Luke Acts and together saying, this is, this is what Jesus began to do and teach and I wanted to set it out in an orderly fashion. I wasn't an eyewitness to these things, but I have scoped these things out over the course of time. And, and Luke would be a great one to do that because he, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. And so in traveling with Paul, he would learn about the, all the events and, and what took place in the, in the early church because Paul was so integral in that, at least from his conversion on, obviously. And even Paul would have known some of those things before when he was persecuting the church. So Paul would be a good one to be around. And, and they spent time traveling and spent a great deal of time in the area of Palestine. So Luke would have had ample opportunity to interview people and to talk to people about the life of Jesus, even all the way back to the birth of Jesus. And so, so he was fitting to do that. And as an educated man, as a physician, he had opportunity to put it down in writing in an orderly fashion. He said, so that, Theophilus, you can be certain that what you've been taught about Jesus is really true. Others have written, that's great, but I want to lay this down in an orderly fashion so you can be certain that what you have been taught about Jesus is really true. And so in volume one, you get this sense that Luke's saying, there... I laid out what Jesus began to do and teach. And implied by that, you get this sense that, that Acts is going to be about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. He began there. He didn't say began and ended. He said he began there. Now this is volume two. You get the sense that he's saying, now this is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. But you might say, didn't Jesus from the cross say, it's finished, it's done, there's no more to do? And of course, Jesus did say from the cross, it is finished. The question is, what was finished? What was finished at the cross? What, what was done at that moment in time? What was done at that moment in time was atonement for sin. What was done at that moment in time is that Jesus paid all that needed to be paid so that sinners could be forgiven, paid all the debt of the sins of sinners 
who would be saved. That's what Jesus did. And at that moment in time, right before he took his last breath, because he was done suffering, he was able to say, it's done, it's finished. I've done it. I've paid. There's no more to be paid, ever. It's completed at this moment in time. I've conquered sin and death. On behalf of all those who will be saved, on behalf of all those who believe, I've done it. It's finished. It's over. He took his last breath. And then, on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And at that moment, we knew it had been finished when he said it was finished. Because there's no more death in him, no more suffering. The wages of sin is death. And therefore, when Jesus came alive, he said that all the sin that was on me has been paid. There's no more death to be, to, to be had in me. There's no more suffering to be done. And so the resurrection of Jesus was the pronouncement of God that says, I affirm what he said. It's done. It's finished. The, the, the penalty for sin is paid for by Jesus. No more death in him. He's free to go. And of course, he had no sin in himself, so that was no hindrance at all. So once our sin had been paid for, then life could be once again his. So it was that declaration. So he rose from the dead. So he's alive. So the atonement for sin is finished, but, but Jesus is still alive. And so the question is, what's he going to do now? Well, as we read through this, as we get to the end of, of, of the passage I read, we realize he ascends. And as he ascends, you see, he goes to sit at the very right hand of the throne of God, the place of honor, the place of power, and there he rules. Notice how we, uh, how other biblical authors put it. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 1, we read this about Jesus. He writes, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And notice what he's doing. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we, we realize that what he's doing presently, this isn't all that he's doing, but what he's doing presently is he's upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. If Jesus ceases to be, the whole universe ceases to be. If he, speaks, if he stops speaking life and this is going to exist, then it ceases to exist. So that's what he's still doing. Uh, in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in verse 25. He says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is in glory. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, continually, always, never missing a moment, always making intercession that is defending us in glory so that all that draw to the Father through Him will be saved. He's guaranteeing the salvation of all those for whom He died He's guaranteeing the salvation of all those who draw to the Father through him by his life. That's what he's doing now. So that every believer in Christ can have all the confidence in their own salvation because it comes through Christ and he's alive and he's guaranteeing it by his defense, by his intercession. He's continuing to do that. 
He didn't start doing that until he ascended, but he's continuing to do that. And so what was finished was the atonement, payment for sin. What he continues to do is uphold the universe and defend us. Then notice in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 21, mid-sentence, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but the age to come. Let me begin in verse 20. That would be better. Still mid-sentence. That he worked in Christ, that is, the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he, that is, the Father, put all things under his feet, that is the Son, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what we see is not only is he upholding the universe, not only is he interceding for us, but he's ruling and reigning over all things for the sake of the church. So that's what he's still doing. He's still alive and he's still doing all of this Ruling and reigning. There's a couple of other pictures. There's a picture, and we won't read this because it would take too long, but in Revelation chapter 5, and there's a big scene in glory, and there's these scrolls that need to be opened, the very scrolls of history. And, and the lament is going out. Who, who's worthy to open these scrolls? Meaning, who's worthy to oversee all of history? Who's, who's worthy to oversee all that's going to take place? Who's, who's worthy? And there's no one found worthy but this one who was this lamb who had been slain, the Lord Jesus. And he's worthy to open the scrolls. And so he rules and he reigns over all of history. Everything that's poured out, everything that happens, Jesus rules and reigns. And a day will come, obviously, when he'll return. And at that day, he'll bring it all to fruition, consummate everything, because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's doing that even still. And so Luke is saying, in essence... He began all of this in the course of his life. He was born, did miracles, died, rose, ascended. That's what he did. That's what he taught. And he's continuing this Jesus because he's alive. Notice Luke says this too in in verse 3. To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs. Because you see, there's this sense in which that Jesus uh, is here, though we can't see him. And during the days after his resurrection, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus would, would show up. There he'd be. They saw him die, and then they saw him alive. And he didn't stay with them continuously for this 40 days. He was kind of, he was kind of in and out. And there's this sense in which that, that even when he wasn't with them, he was with them. Do you remember uh, on the first night, the Sunday night, Jesus rose on that Sunday. Uh, and that Sunday night, all the disciples except Thomas were in this upper room. And Jesus shows up. And it's like, whoo, here he is. He talks a while and then he leaves. And then Thomas sometime later shows up and they go, whew. Thomas, you missed it. Jesus was here. He's alive. We saw him. And you remember what Thomas said. He said, I won't believe it unless I see his hands and the scars. And I put my fingers in his side. I just simply won't believe it. Then sometime later, Jesus shows up and they're all together, even Thomas. And Jesus turns to Thomas and he says, look. He says, touch me. 
Now, if I'm Thomas, I'm looking at the other guys going, who told him? <laughs> and they're thinking, how do you know? He wasn't with us. And then they're thinking, maybe he was, though we didn't see him. And see, all this activity, Jesus showing himself and pulling away, showing himself, pulling away, saying, I'm with you, even though you can't see me. Now, this is going to be a really strange illustration, but, but go with me on this Years ago, 20 years ago, almost 18 years ago, when I was living in Denver, I was talking to a psychologist, and you're thinking, why do you need to talk to a psychologist? Uh, but I was talking to a psychologist, and, 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 and uh, sort of about this and an idea I had, and, and I asked him about, he was a child psychologist type, I asked him about the game that we play with our children called Peekaboo. You know the game, you know, you kind of show your face and hide your face. And, and he said, you know, it's, one, it's, it's, it's surprising you should talk to me about that because there's some papers written about that. And he says that it's really a great game to play with your kids because it gives them security when you're not there. I said, oh, talk to me about this. I said, he, said, well, do you, he said, we've noticed that when you play peekaboo with a kid for the first time, they often cry. I don't know if you've ever played peekaboo with kids and they cry. It's really a bad feeling. Uh, but um, although it's also not good if they say, he's not here anymore. Uh, but what happens, he said, you know, you, you, you show them your face and everything's happy. And then you go away and they become insecure. So they cry. And then you pop up and then they laugh. And they go, oh, this is great. You're back. Well, after a while, you do that, they get the game. And they go, okay, you're really here, but you're not here. I can't see you, and you're going to pop up soon. You know, and then they, it's not so funny. After a while, to them, they go, go away. But he says, what that does is, it provides this security. I can't see my dad. I can't see my mom. But I know they're really here. Now, please, I'm not saying Jesus was playing some peekaboo game with his disciples. But there's a sense in which that's taking place. He's saying, I'm here, I'm not here, but I'm really here. I'm, you can see me, you can't see me. And when you can't see me, that doesn't mean I'm not present with you. And a day came when the reality of all that was very real in their lives. Because he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem, and I'm going to send the, the Holy Spirit. Now, they would have heard, they would have understood some about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus had talked to them about the Holy Spirit and he had given them commands through the Holy Spirit, meaning that the only way they could get these commands and understand these commands is because the Spirit of God was in some sense with them. But they, they knew something of, of the Holy Spirit. Turn back to John in chapter 14. In verse, in verse 15. And this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. So he's having this intimate conversation with his disciples about what's going to happen. Um, it wouldn't be too many hours after this that he would be arrested. Not too many after that that he'd be tried. Not too long after that that he'd be crucified. And so this is the this is the scene. It's, a, it's, it's an emotional one, no doubt. It's a solemn one, no doubt. It's a very serious one, no doubt. Jesus meeting with his disciples. And he says to them, uh, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Now, 
we can read this and, and have a sense about what Jesus is talking about. We know that he won't leave them as orphans. We know that they will see him again in these resurrection appearances. And we know what it means that the Holy Spirit will come. But realize they didn't have a category in their brain for what that would really, truly mean. And we know that because even though Jesus said he was going to go to Jerusalem and and going to be tried and going to die and going to rise on the third day, when he did, they didn't believe it. I mean, it just wasn't there for them. And, 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 And frankly, we can be very sympathetic to them because how many times do you see someone raised from the dead? I mean, this is not an easy concept. It's not something that happens every day. It's happened once. And so they were going to have to come to grips with this. And so, so Jesus is telling them these things. We can translate it after the fact and say, oh yes, I know what he means. But for them, a difficult concept. But he's saying, listen, there's going to be one who's going to come. And, and he's going to help you. In fact, he'll be with you. In fact, he'll be in you. In fact, I'll be with you. In him. In this Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 23, Jesus says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus again saying, I'm going to go, but I'll be with you. And I'll be with you in this one, the Holy Spirit. Turn to chapter 16, verse 12. Again, same teaching. Jesus says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own uh, authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is saying, could I lay this out any more clearly? Could I, could I cause there to be any closer identity between this Holy Spirit and me? He is going to take that which is true of me and apply it to you. And there is a sense that as he does that, I'm with you. He's going to mediate my very presence with you. And even though you can't see me, still, I'll be with you. That's why uh, Luke, in Acts chapter 16, refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. That's why Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, refers to the Holy Spirit like this. He says, the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit comes to show us Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to bring the very presence of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and the work of Jesus to us. That's what he does. So when the Spirit is working, it's like Jesus is working. So when the Spirit is here doing and teaching, Jesus is here doing 
and teaching. And the best illustration I have of this is one that I've used probably a dozen times, so just bear with me. I, just, I was trying to think of a better one, and I couldn't, um, which is an unusual for me, not being able to think of anything. But this one's from J.I. Packer, which is why it's better than all the ones I ever come up with, because uh, he's a great theologian, and I'm me. Uh, but, but he talks about the work of the Spirit as being a floodlight ministry. And Packer came to this uh, illustration because he was preaching one night uh, at, a, at a particular church that was housed in a beautiful building. And uh, he, was, he was anticipating being a good Anglican, wanting to see this pretty building. And so, but then he realized, oh, rats, it's at night. I won't be able to see at least the outside of the building. And, and he loved the outside architecture of this building. But as he was approaching uh, the church building, he realized he could see it. And it was illuminated. It was beautiful. And he began to just enjoy the building. And he stood out in front and just looked at it. And he was enjoying the building. And then finally it dawned on him, how can I enjoy this? It's, it's night. And then he noticed behind the bushes there were these spotlights. And they were spotting the building. And he said, ah, that's like the Holy Spirit. He couldn't see the spotlights. He could see the building. He says, we can't see the Holy Spirit because he illumines Jesus to us. And so that when the Spirit is with us, what we're, what we're really enjoying, what we're seeing, what we're having applied to us, is Christ and the very presence of Christ. And so when Luke in Acts says, well, in my gospel, I began to tell you about what Jesus did and taught. Now, I want to show you what he's continuing to do and teach. You say, how can he do that? Wasn't it finished? Yes, but the atoning work is finished. And now he ascends to rule and reign. Well, how can he be present with us? How can he be doing stuff? Well, because he's here in his spirit. He's here by the very presence of the Holy Spirit. And what he began there, he's continuing here. What he accomplished there, he's applying here. And so it's one to the other. The very work of Christ. And now we see, uh, he says, that Jesus talked to them about the kingdom of God. Notice verse 3. It says, To them he presented himself after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now you might wonder, why did he speak to them about the kingdom of God? Well, you can tell by their question they had the kingdom of God in their mind. Notice in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they had the kingdom of God in mind, and Jesus says, well, no, essentially. Uh, uh, it appears they misunderstood two things. One was very explicit. They misunderstood timing, and he said, now isn't the time to restore it like you're anticipating it being restored. Uh, and secondly, they misunderstood that it was this kingdom of God was not a particular territory, not a particular realm, not a particular nation like Israel, but it was to invade the whole world. And so he says, when the Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. The kingdom is going to go throughout the entire world. Because you see, we live in a rather funny kind of time. On the one hand, you know, time began with creation as we understand it, and, and that's this what the Bible calls this present age, and it still continues. But when Jesus arrived, he brought with him and in him the kingdom of God, that is, the age that is to come, intruded upon the age in which we now live. And so right now, we live in this two-age time period, the present age 
but also the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's come. It isn't in its fullness, but it's come. And in fact, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he calls it the gospel. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, Jesus says to a group of people, he says, I know I'm here, but I've got to go because I've got to preach the good news, the gospel. I've got to preach the good news of the kingdom of God over there. Because you see, the kingdom of God is good news. In this present age, we live under the kingdom of sin, if you will. Sin is what rules. Sin is what dictates the course of our lives. But now the kingdom of God has come. And when the rule of God comes, it breaks that power of sin. He says, now you're to live differently. Now you're to live accepted by me. Now you're to live forgiven by me. Now you're to live in my kingdom, obeying me. And that's completely different. He says, that's really good news. You're no longer under the bondage of sin. You're no longer under its penalty. You're no longer under its power. And so he says, now you're free, you see, to live as I've made you to be. In fact, the prophet Isaiah knew much about this. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 52 in verse 7, Isaiah writes this poem. Many of you have sung this over the course of your lives in churches. He writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. In other words, the good news is there's peace. The good news is there's happiness. The good news is there's salvation. And what is that good news? He says, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the good news. And this kingdom of God came in Jesus. You remember as he began his ministry, even as John the Baptist introduced him. Repent, he said. Why? Because the kingdom of God is right here. Because Jesus was the king of that kingdom. He said, I'm coming now to usher in into the lives of people in a very personal way. I'm going to usher into the lives of people the very rule of God. And this will change everything. When the kingdom of God comes upon you, when the rule of God comes upon you, it breaks the power of the previous king in your life. It breaks the power of the rule of sin in your life. It breaks the power of the rule of yourself in your life. It breaks the power of the rule of Satan in your life. When the kingdom of God comes, it breaks that rule and frees you that you therefore may believe, that you may trust in Jesus and see him, understand him to be the king. Say yes and to yield to him. The very kingdom of God breaking in upon a person's life. And this kingdom changes everything because it brings ultimately perfect and complete restoration. We see that it restores spiritually and emotionally and physically and materially. We see that it restores spiritually because it it, it breaks what is between us and God. And Jesus breaks that on the cross, obviously, in dying for the sins of sinners so that God's wrath is satisfied. And then the Spirit breaks that in upon us and overcomes our, our sinfulness and overcomes our rebellion and we believe and, and we go, yes, therefore now I'm restored to God. I'm forgiven my sins. I belong to Him. And it's to restore us emotionally as well because this very forgiveness is to cleanse our conscience from sin and from guilt. And we go, It's to restore us materially, ultimately. Every provision that we need will be provided. We'll see it most especially in the age to come. 
even physically. We know that a day will come when there will be no more death. We know there will be no more dying. There will be no more uh, 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 pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. We know all of that. He says, when the kingdom comes, it breaks in the context of your life. It restores you to God. It makes these promises to you, some of which you'll experience in the course of this life. Some you'll see at the return of Jesus, but it's guaranteed for you. It's as good as here because the promise has been made by God. Live in it. Live in the security of that. Live in the comfort of that. Live in the confidence of that. Uh, even even now the kingdom of God comes. And of course, Jesus is the king. And so we're to obey him because he is the king in all this. And we'll obey him joyfully. And of course, you'd say, why not? What could I ever command you that wouldn't be for your best? What could I ever command you that wouldn't be for your good? What could I ever command you that, 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 that you shouldn't rejoice in? To follow after me. And that's why he looks at this group of people and he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do the things that I tell you? In one sense, we can say minimally, it just makes no sense. I mean, the expression no and oh, Lord, is an oxymoron. Because if he's really the Lord, you could never say no. And if you say no, he can't really be the Lord. And yet we find ourselves in that position all the time. And he's saying, you don't get it quite. Follow me. If you're my kingdom, if you're a citizen of my kingdom, you recognize me as the king and so... Yield yourself to me. Give yourself to me. Follow after me. In fact, he put it like this on another occasion. He says, if you want to be my follower, what? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Which means to put to death everything else that could possibly be a king in your life. Everything else that could possibly lead you and drive you and define you and all of that. Put that to death and follow me. In fact, there was a man who had great wealth who came to Jesus one day and said, listen, if you really want to follow me, I'm going to call you to sell all of that. And follow me. Because it's following me, not holding on to anything else. Because it's my kingdom, and I'm the king of the kingdom, and I've come to bless you in the midst of this kingdom. And he says, listen, entrances into this kingdom isn't any way you can any isn't anything you can buy your way into. It isn't anything you can earn your way into. It you can only come, Jesus said, pointing to a little child like this little infant. Not innocently. I hope this is a new news to you, but infants aren't innocent. <laughs> if you don't believe that, have some. Uh, but they're dependent. Infants are utterly dependent. Children, by definition, are utterly dependent. They can't live without another. They can't live on their own. They'll simply die. And so Jesus says, if you want to come to me and be my follower, you have to come as a child that is completely dependent upon me. You have to look to me completely for blessing. You can't look anywhere else. You have to express the fact and know the fact and embrace the fact that you can't and you're poor in spirit. You have nothing to offer. Left alone in your own sin, you'll simply die. You'll simply be condemned. And if you want not to be, you realize you're completely dependent upon me. And so come as a child would come to his mother for milk. You come to me for all that you need. Every blessing. And I'm there. That's this kingdom. And that's the good news of the kingdom. So he spoke to them about that. And then he says, here's the kicker. This kingdom can only be spread and will only be spread through my witnesses. And that's what this is about. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's the acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. 
It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, it's, it's the acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through His church. It's the acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through believers in Christ. And that's what it is. And He calls them then to be witnesses. Now He says, listen, you can't be my witnesses without power. But So the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and we'll talk about that next week. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. But it's quite interesting that the word witness in English, um, that we translate uh, from the Greek into English as witness, is really the word martyr. The Greek word for witness is the word martyr. Now you may want to think this through. I don't think, though, Jesus is saying, you have to die for me in the sense of physical death, although they all would and did. But there is a connection between being a witness and this whole idea of being a martyr. Because someone who's a witness testifies to the truth of something. A martyr testifies to the truth of it with his or her life. And I think there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my witnesses, if you're going to testify to me, you must testify of me that the kingdom of God has come in me with your whole life. That your whole life is consumed by this. Your whole life is spent by this. Your identity, my identity as a follower of Christ is as a witness, a testimony, a testifier of the fact that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Everything about us should scream that. Everything about us should proclaim that. Everything about us should, as Isaiah would say, publish that abroad. That people should be able to see in the life of us individually, in the life of us corporately, that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. I leave you just with this to ponder. Does it? It's my life. It's your life. Publish abroad. Proclaim. Declare that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Does my life show the forgiveness of sins? Does my life show the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Christ? Does my life show all that should be shown by the kingdom of God having come? Now, as we enter into this consideration of being his witnesses, not a new thought probably for any of us, but I hope a renewed thought for all of us. And we're to testify to the truth that the kingdom of God has come. Our confidence in knowing that the kingdom of God has come is to see the triumph of our king on the cross. When Jesus came, he said, listen, I'm going to break the power of sin. I'm going to defeat your enemy. I'm going to feed my enemies by dying. Because in my dying, I'm going to take the sin of sinners upon myself. And in so doing, it's going to break the power of sin because it's going to pay its debt. I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm going to prove that it has no hold on any who believe and who trust in me because I'm the king. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to triumph over every power, every principality, every sin, everything. And so that's why the cross is the crux of the matter for believers because we remember that night that Jesus was betrayed he was with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you and then he took the cup that was there 
And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which has been shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, now do this in remembrance of me. That is, that is, think about me as you do this and do this in honor of me. Because when you do this, you're proclaiming my death until I come. And what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that our God reigns. That sin and death do not reign. That sin and death have been defeated by him. And we have been restored to him. And that nothing can change that. And now we're to live as martyrs, meaning that everything in our life, even our own last breath, is dedicated, committed to, pronouncing the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us. Because Lord, I know that it's a great assignment. It's a great commission. And I thank you that even as I read through the book of Acts, these acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles, I realize that it was accomplished. That your work in Jerusalem, your work in Judea and Samaria through them, all the way to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome, the kingdom had spread. So even as we think of ourselves as such witnesses, we realize, yes, God is with us. So I pray that we would be such witnesses. And I pray even today, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit you'd be present among us, present at this table, so that as we come up and as we enjoy this meal, as we partake of this meal, that you have laid out before us, that we will fellowship with you, that we'll know that we've been with Jesus, for you're alive and you're here. And you're doing and teaching by your Spirit even still. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.